Flyover Politics Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. commemorate Veterans Day, I just wanted to do a short show of a few stories recently, a couple sound bites, a little excerpt from my military one years ago, and some comedy on the back end that I got from Matt in Oregon. So, uh, just trolling lately, I haven't been doing it a lot, but Army Times came out with, after I received my Medal of Honor, the hardest battle of my life began. Kyle White, Army Sergeant, 7th Living Receipt. And the day, a day 13 years in the past can seem like both yesterday and a lifetime ago. At least that's how it feels. What happened that afternoon on a rocky hillside in Nuristan province in Afghanistan would change the lives of everyone. It was the worst day of my life and it would be followed by many hard years caught in an endless battle inside my head. I don't think we've done anything to help the 22 a day. No administration has. No party has. The country doesn't give a shit. We spend a lot of time talking about uh, trans, suicide, genocide. But we don't talk about PTSD and the issues. For the record, anybody follow the show? I went to counseling. I had survivor's remorse because I got out. A lot of my friends died during that time. I had a lot of issues with depression. And finally went and got seen and talked some of it out. Now, granted, it was what I thought it was going to be. They didn't really want to talk about your military service because they don't want to service connect anything. And everything you see in these rooms, and it was off post, we don't give service recommended recommendations. I didn't want that. I just wanted to talk because I did feel guilty. I had left the military and... People were dying left and right. Now, years later, I understand. I did my fight. I served. If I would have stayed in, I wouldn't have gone to war. I wouldn't have affected anything. I would have stayed in the NTC forever because I 
you know, would have made E8 and would have stayed there. There wasn't a freeze on E7s. There was on E8s. So I never would have got to Iraq. I would have stayed in the desert. But here's a guy that's a hero. And he's battling it. It's probably worse than anything I could ever articulate. Because here he's being awarded the highest medal in the country. He's a hero. He's in a select group of people that are still alive. But... It doesn't feel that way for him. Another story you can find on Task and Purpose. A-10 pilot awarded Distinguished Flying Cross for dramatic landing with missing canopy and no landing gear. This story is amazing. If you look at the plane, it is fucked up. And he belly landed it. So, pretty freaking impressive stuff. To changes. The Marine Corps has finally fielded his first new amphibious vehicle since the Vietnam War. Marine Corps finally filled his first amphibious vehicle. I can't even say it. The new vehicle, the ACV, is expected to replace the service arsenal of, of amphibious assault vehicles that have been in service since the 70s. And it's a pretty badass looking to be. A lot of like a striker, little lower profile. Pretty cool shit. Um, the Navy simultaneously is asking for $9.47 billion to start a new sub-program. Which is pretty interesting because I thought the subs we had are brand new, but I didn't know that. Army still wants precision infantry weapon to destroy the enemy from behind cover. They come out with a lot of stuff, like the XM-25, and then they killed it. But there still needs to be some kind of bunker thing. Um, AT-4 is great. Still got laws in the inventory, but it's not all that in a bag of chips. Army Marines want new machine guns to replace the 240 and the Mod Deuce. They're both looking to medium and heavy machine guns to replace the 7.62 and 50 caliber. Based on the success of next generation squad weapons, we're interested in learning about the possibilities of the state of technology for next gen medium and next gen heavy weapons. And overall, it's the same thing you can think about if you look at the new programs. Lighter. Same range, same rate of fire, but ammo, everything. I mean, you got to think, a machine gun and an infantry squad, everybody's carrying 100 rounds. Everybody. And it just chews that ammo up, and that ammo's heavy. I mean, I carry 200, plus like 20 magazines, claymores, grenades. The Army is looking looking at changing the size of the infantry squad. Maneuver officials at Fort Benning, Georgia, are looking at restructuring future ground combat units, including the effort that could change the size of the infantry squad. For the past three years, the Army has been rushing to perfect new advanced weapons and other sophisticated battle technology prepared for large-scale battle with possibly Russia or China. Now the service is looking at how new systems ranging from robotic combat vehicles to next-gen squad weapon could affect the size of maneuver units starting with the nine-man infantry squad. Maneuver officials will support an Army-directed squad study of the first of its kind in many decades to determine the optimal optimal size. This is one that I think will gain a lot of interest as we move forward. Um, And it sounds like they want to reduce. Um, To me, yeah, that's stupid. Yeah, you probably shouldn't reduce size. You you need to increase, in my opinion, the 9 man infantry squad is it it's just not enough sometimes um 
Not enough. It just doesn't seem like at times in the battle you have enough people to overcome what you're going to run into. Because remember, this is the smallest element, the fire team, that makes contest. So you got four people. And when you run into bigger forces, it kind of freaking sucks. So um, <clears throat> I figured at this time to pause, we'd play BRCC's Jamie Caldwell. And if the Navy was a used car that came off the military sites. You're just running on drive, just sure adrenaline. You know, in the back of your mind, you just always have to keep that. Look, this is what I want. This is what I want to do. Jamie Caldwell, 21 years special operations. I started my own tactical training company and I professionally bass fish. I, I grew up in New England, grew up uh, in, in Connecticut. I just always enjoyed being outside, running around. Kids don't do this nowadays, but playing BB gun wars and paintball guns came about, playing cops and robbers, you know, whatever it was, playing army uh, and fishing. As I got older, I, I knew, I mean, I leaned more towards that military side. I wanted to join the military. Senior year, enlisted, had a ranger contract. My counselor asked me, you know, what I wanted to do, and I pretty much told him I was joining the military when I graduated. I knew that was for me. I knew that's what I wanted to do. So after spending seven years in Ranger Battalion, we got to work a little bit with the guys from the unit. You were in awe when you saw them. You know, they're wearing the best kit. When I was Ranger Battalion, there wasn't really a big conflict going on. And I wanted to join the military because I wanted to serve my country. I wanted to go to combat. I knew those guys were doing that. So that was sort of the next step. That's the advancement for me from Ranger Battalion was to go to the unit. So I put everything I had into it, went to selection, was fortunate enough to make it. America strikes back. Afghanistan is pounded with bombs and missiles from the air and sea. When you first go to combat, mentally, nobody's prepared for it. I was in Afghanistan in 01. We had to make a long drive because we were heading to Tora Bora. We were going to hunt bin Laden. I did 14 deployments, you know, and, and some of them during the heydays of Iraq. I mean, there was... 90-day rotations where we did over a hundred and something hits. So 
So the transition, once you get out of the military, I mean, everybody struggles with it. Some guys struggle with it, you know, in different ways. You know, fishing is my therapy. I'm able to, when I need it, just jump on the boat, get out there. Fish. I'm focused on catching those fish, figuring them out. You know, I'm out in nature, which I love. Step back a little bit, you know, take a look at the world. Just be in the moment and just go out there and have a good time. Through my whole career, really still had that fishing bug. So while I was stationed in Savannah, that's when I really got into bass fishing and tournament fishing. I was an adrenaline junkie, loved jumping out of planes, loved doing all that. Take my passion for fishing, the bass fishing aspect of it, competition, running around in bass boats at 70 miles an hour plus, competing against these other anglers and the fish. I, I knew I was hooked at something I wanted to do. So I continued to do that, ended up getting sponsors, putting everything together, fishing at different levels, exited out of the military and went professional bass fishing. My relationship with Black Rifle Coffee came about through a good buddy of mine, Kyle Lamb. And through my fishing, I just figured, I'm like, man, you know, Black Rifle Coffee would be a, be a great sponsor for me to have. They weren't doing anything in the fishing market. So I thought, man, I could really bring them into the market, you know, have the tactical background, which fits along with, you know, the whole company, everything that it's going for. So Kyle got me a introduction with Evan at SHOT Show, met Evan at the 511 booth, and we hit it off right away, and Evan's like, yeah, man, we'd love to do something with you, and it's just continually grown from there. I mean, they've been on board as a primary sponsor now for a few years, and I'm helping them to grow in the fishing industry and that market to uh, you know, really expand the brand to a whole nother audience. I'm Riley Drips, and I'm Ryan Leakes, and welcome to Big Iron Sales. We have the best used and certified pre-owned helicopters in the whole U.S. of A. Here at Big Iron, we only have one type of aircraft. That's the 1984 Sikorsky MH-53 Echo Sea Dragon. There's less than 30 of these bad boys left in the world, and they're going fast. So get in while you still can. So you might be thinking, 60s are pretty sweet, right? Wrong. Do Romeos and Sierras have these? Three engines! That's over 15,000 horses! Power! Power! More power! Our fuel tanks are heavier than a 60! Hey, do you hate spending all that time in the hot pits? Well, with the 53's aerial refueling probe, now you don't have to. Just do it while you're flying. At 99 feet long and 28 feet tall, this is the largest hovering thing in the free world. You ever seen a big rig and thought, wow, I'd really like to fly one of those? Now's your chance. Woo! How much can this baby lift? Over 69,000 pounds. 69,000 pounds? How you lift all that weight? Well, you can't do it with four blades. That's why all of our Echo models come with a seven blade package. Look 
colors does she come in? We've got gray, we've got black, we've got gray and black. Alright, let's go check out inside. I love that new used helicopter smell. Is that high fluid? Oh yeah it is. Now when a pilot comes in looking to upgrade their TH-57, but they're worried about the confusing glass cockpit, I tell them not to worry. This thing will feel just like home. Real pilots fly steam gauges. Now what really sets this thing apart is the interior. Let's take a look. We got two flat screen LCD TVs. We've got winches! We've got mine hunting sonar equipment! Here at Big Iron Sales, we're always strapped with the premier airborne mine countermeasures equipment. You remember that last time you were at the beach and your whole day was ruined because all them mines? Exactly. You're welcome. But that's not all. When you clear all this out, we can do passengers, mail, cargo, provide, water, medicine, life-saving equipment for disaster relief. Fast ropes, small boats, and more operators than an MH-60 Sierra will ever see. Well, let's not forget, this is still a U.S. Navy maritime asset. In fact, in the last three and a half years, I have spent the night on the boat over nine whole times. I've spent zero. So whether it's time to upgrade that TA-57, or you've discovered you got a nasty mind problem, come on down to Big Iron Sales. Conveniently located at these three locations. So I don't leave them out, I also wanted to play a Ranger Up one, McCuddley's Revenge, which was pretty funny. Hey guys, how's trick-or-treating going? Great, we got Snickers, M&Ms, and 9mm bullets. No 5.56 five, though. Did you just say you got 9mm bullets? Yeah, Mr. McGillicuddy's handing them out. Let me see that. He says they're worth their weight in gold. Is that true? I mean, yeah. No. So, he's just giving these away? Yeah, he's putting them in every bag. Trick or treat! Wow, thank you so much! A butterfly, a superhero, and a monkey, and a... Oh, you must be the new kid on the wrestling team. Anyways, there you go. There you go. Don't tread on me. Don't use them all in one place, okay? All right. Ah, trick or treat! Happy Halloween! Tell your parents I said hi. Trick or treat! Oh, uh, more of you! I, what I seem? Uh, forget it. Whatever. Well, God bless America. Here you go. There's a nine for you. Couple nines here for you. Hey, haven't I seen you before? Okay. Well, here you go. Here's a couple nines for you as well, buddy. All right. Trick or treat. Have a happy night. Oh, look what we got here. Hello, my spooky neighborhood friends. Trick or treat! Trick or treat! Jesus, it's like three in the morning. What's up with you kids? What, what even are you? Shall not be infringed! 
you know what? I kind of like you, because you know what? They're teaching the right things in some schools still, at least. All right, you take it easy now. Have a good night. Man, Halloween's the best. I know, right? It's so fun. Great. Can we do it again tomorrow? <laughs> Dad really needs to start reloading his own ammo. This is just sad. Yeah. Then to a story, 2020 Veterans Day free meal and restaurant deals. So from uh, military.com, 54th Street Grills got a special 7-Eleven, Abulo's Mexican, a Kipsco, Applebee, Army Air Force Exchange, Aroma Joe's, Aspen Greek Grill, Baker Dave's, Baker Square, Bandana Barbecue, Bar Louise, Beef O'Brady, Ben Soft Pretzel, Bid Bop, Bibi Bop Asian Grill, which is, we have one here, it's really good. Bigby Coffee, Billy Sims Restaurant, Gee, many Crickets. There's so many. So you can go as a vet to Military.com Veterans Day restaurants, and you will see um, <clears throat> the list. Task of Purpose had another article, nine types of profile pictures that show up just before Veterans Day. The picture of your grandpa? The blank adapter picture, which is really kind of stupid. Buddy pictures. P- a Pogue being moto picture. Those ones kill me. Boot camp picture. The first marriage picture. The photoshopped art. The parental pride photo. The guilt inducer with the uh, literal tomb of the unknown soldier, which I think's pretty fucking funny. Our next is from... A episode I did in the beginning of this podcast, it literally was when I thought I was going to go viral and be ginormous and everybody was going to listen to me. Trying my best to be an announcer, man. And that just didn't happen because that's just the way life is. This is an interview with Daniel Chapman, who is literally a badass mofo, who was one of the corporals in my unit and did Operation Anaconda. Um, I was going to play the lieutenant one, but it's super long. This one's about 30 minutes. So if you don't want to listen to an older, less good quality soundbite, um, I couldn't play one without, uh, you know, the battle that I participated in, the book I was in, because Veterans Day, I just think about Afghanistan and all the buddies I had. So I, I want to play this, and it's a good interview with him. He knows everything about every weapon on the planet, and the dude snuck home all sorts of planets from our, our weapons over there, which is pretty freaking badass so here is daniel chapman you'll hear the actual helicopter sound bites that were from the videos taken when we go into battle and when they flew over us so that'll precede it and be the ending And welcome back to Flyover Politic. It's my honor to introduce to the show 
Corporal Dan in California, one of the gentlemen I had the honor to serve with during OEF-1. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for uh, for having me. So, um, you know, we're just going over your experiences and what you remember uh, during the deployment to Kandahar and, uh, of course, Operation Anaconda. And, you know, the floor is yours. Just go ahead and talk about anything you'd like to discuss and uh, talk from your perspective. Well, my perspective is that uh, I was an infantryman. I joined the Army in 1999, uh, obviously before September 11th or before kind of the wartime footing our country came came on uh, after September, September 11th. So I joined a, a peacetime Army, kind of not anticipating going to war, just trying to have an adventure as a, as a teenager. Um, I joined the Army, uh, became an infantryman, I uh, enjoyed it very much, was sent to Fort Campbell, uh, became a member of the 101st Airborne Division, 187th Infantry Regiment. Uh, that's where I was assigned and, uh, you know, doing peacetime training duty when September 11th occurred. And obviously the, the whole world changed at that point. Uh, overnight we went from uh, having a, you know, fun adventure to being a country at war. Yeah. Yeah, we sure did. In my previous episode, I talked about the you know, the deployment phase and how we had a formation and we were leaving tomorrow and then, you know, we sat around forever and they bunkered battalions and you had to show ID to get around and, and uh, thought it was pretty silly when you look back on it. But at the time, it was pretty serious. Oh, yeah, I remember the security after September 11th was, uh, was you know, completely over the top. Everyone, you know, no one understood the magnitude of what happened or what was, you know, what attacks can continue to happen. But uh, I distinctly remember that I lived on the base at Fort Campbell, and right around the corner from my house was a elementary school, and they had put a machine gun emplacement on the roof of the elementary school. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, so I thought that was uh, the, the amazing thing is extreme. because I transferred over. That was actually my unit in Third Battalion. We had the uh, schools, and I remember doing that and thinking it was just a little bit too much. We probably we probably overshot the objective, but that's you know that was the state of mind that it was it was some serious crap, and they're everywhere. Um, do you remember much about the deployment itself, and and how long it it you know for you? You were on the same bird I was, right? We, we all just didn't go out until the very end, correct? Right. You know, I, I remember, uh, of course, immediately after September 11th, I think every unit in the entire Army thought they would be going to Afghanistan to fight. I mean, mm-hmm. the rumors were, the rumor mill was, was swirling, but for us it seemed like the rumors were sticking and we were being issued desert equipment, desert uniforms, and, uh, you know, getting extra training. And I remember when it really set in for me that we would definitely be going to Afghanistan is when we started getting uh, brand new weapons, mm-hmm. which is something that I hadn't seen in the Army. All of our equipment was pretty old and beat up, and all of a sudden, just brand new, you know, body armor and weapons started showing up in desert uniforms. So I thought, hey, this is this is it. We're we're going to head over there. Yeah, and we did. Yeah. Do you remember? Um about the flyover of Ground Zero. My previous episode, I played videos of, you know, the TV spots and what we had, and it it covered, you know, just the initial flights, and it covered the one from uh, Ramstein to uh, 
Afghanistan, and of course, it was just a lot of me because my wife was the one capturing it. But do you remember that that incident when we flew over and and got to see it out the window? Oh yeah, I remember that like it was yesterday. I mean, especially after September 11th, we all just had you know so much emotion and feelings for being attacked like that, and then to be you know, deploying and going off to war and being able to see the still smoking ruins of where the World Trade Center was, I think really inspired everyone that we really had a a righteous mission that we were, you know, headed to do and helped us to, you know, prepare to do our job and understand the gravity of the situation. Rog. Now you were, correct me if I'm wrong, because it's all fuzzy now after, what, 15 years or whatever, um... Well, you were, you were in Sergeant Lanfear's squad, right? Yes, I was in yeah. a, a second platoon, second squad. Um, I was the Bravo team leader, so I was the second team leader in Sergeant Lanfear's private squad. So when we, in the previous episode, we, we played a, a video at Channel 5, so you were on the Gardez crash, correct? Yes, yeah that, yeah, that is correct. I was on that helicopter. Yeah, if you want to talk about it, because it was featured, because they showed the... Um, I can't remember the gentleman's name and Landfair were interviewed by Dana Kay, and we did play it on the show. So from your perspective, if you'd like to talk about that, uh, as they termed it, it, instead of a crash, it was what, a hard landing or whatever the Army speak was? <laughs> it's still a crash. Um, go ahead and speak on that if you would. Sure. Um, well, what, what had happened is, is um, uh, a platoon of soldiers was being sent uh, to Kaust, to reinforce a safe house that was uh, that was up there, and uh, our squad had been tasked out to uh, reinforce a, a platoon from, uh, I believe, another company, and uh, so we were we were flying up to Kaust. Uh, we left at about two o'clock in the morning. We were supposed to fly for a couple hours and then land uh, on these rice paddies, kind of on the side of the hill where the SF had secured a site, and. Um, Coming into land, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but uh, there had been some contact on the ground and some exchanges of fire during the night, and they ended up moving RLZ onto the other side of uh, of where the safe house was. And uh, I'm not sure exactly how it played out, but I was obviously in the back of the helicopter, and we were in a Chinook, which is the twin-bladed large helicopter, and um, they called one minute out, so everybody... We all unbuckled our uh, seatbelts, stood up in the back of the helicopter, locked and loaded our weapons, and got ready to, to exit the helicopter tactically. And I remember just a big, uh, a, a big bang, like an explosion going off. And I believe that was one of the rotors of the helicopter hitting the mountainside or clipping a building, or we hit something with one of the rotors, which broke one of the rotor blades off, um, causing the helicopter to lose control and kind of spin and crash onto the ground and then roll over. Uh, the Army did, like, they called it a hard landing. They didn't want to give the, you know, Taliban any kind of credit for taking down a helicopter or the loss of an aircraft. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I remember. You know, it, it is what it is. Um, nobody was was killed, to my recollection, in the initial crash, although one of our, one of the soldiers who was, injured in the crash, later died in the hospital. So, I mean, it was a pretty serious injury. There was a large yeah. number of people hurt. And, was it, um, what was his last name? Over the years, unfortunately, as we, we talked about in the previous interview with uh, Lieutenant Dave, um, I came to the platoon late, and then it was like 
you know, 60 days later, we're, we're doing Anaconda. But when this happened, it was like right when we got on the ground and we'd already been chopped up into different elements. And um, I don't remember the gentleman's name because I didn't know everybody's name at that point. Uh, Private Wheeland was his name. Wheeland, there it is. I knew it was a W. Yeah, he was sitting immediately across from me on the helicopter. And uh, when he he suffered a a really severe broken multiple compound fractures on his legs. And uh, we had to get him out of the helicopter. You know, it was on fire and he was pretty badly injured. And uh, he did end up passing away in the hospital, I believe, some... Uh, several months later. Yeah, it was long uh, after. Was I think you were in Iraq, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. yeah, when it happened, I remember hearing about that. Um, do you remember anything? I mean, would you like to talk on the the, the perimeter duty or any of that stuff, or would you just like to move on to uh, Operation Anaconda? Well, uh, I, I remember after the the helicopter crash, a number of people from my squad were. Most of the people in my squad were injured badly enough that they had to be evacuated stateside. Mm-hmm. So it was only myself and a couple other individuals that were able to return to duty. So we got folded back into the platoon, and then uh, we did security detail there at uh, Kandahar Airfield at the, along the perimeter protecting the air base, which at that point was a very primitive facility, not like it is now, obviously. There's just a few tents there and some old shot-up buildings, some old Russian junk. Um, it was pretty long, mundane duty there, a lot of staring into the desert, staring into the night. We had some limited contact on the border a few, or on the perimeter of the base a few times, uh, but nothing terribly exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, then we got word about Operation Anaconda, and that's when we really started to get prepped up for you know our first major combat operation. Raj. In, in the previous episode, I played uh, excerpts from the flight because I had the, the video that we all got, from, which is all edited. It doesn't really show anything. It's just basically the helicopter ride, and I use the sound effects off it. And then in the documentary that I'm going to play on this podcast, um, it's actually preceding you right now, uh, Daniel. You are in the compound actually um, doing the uh, EPW search for... The objective. So, kind of wanted to see if you you would talk through landing through that portion of the operation, and uh, then we can discuss the movement to Bob, Bob, Battle Position Betty. Oh, sure. Um, so, Operation Anaconda. We were one of the first birds in, and we were um, tasked to land at our LZ and secure a compound that uh, that was nearby. Um, I re- it's my recollection, I don't know if you remember the same thing, that the compound was supposed to have been previously secured by U.S. forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of confusion if it was going to be secured or not be secured. Right. So I, so our impression coming in was that that was a secure area coming in. So uh, I wouldn't say we were relaxed. We knew that there was going to be contact in the area, but uh, I don't think we were anticipating contact right, you know, right on the LZ as we landed. Mm-hmm. But uh, I definitely remember coming down and uh, coming down in the bird with the platoon and, and landing there on the LZ uh, a few hundred meters across from a fairly large compound with uh, half a dozen outbuildings in it. Um, that was my first, I think probably most people's first taste of 
what everybody would consider, you know, real combat, where we're mm-hmm. kind of like the move, what I imagine combat would be, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we flew in, we landed, we started taking fire on the LZ. Um, there was, uh, I remember kind of a burst of confusion a little bit when the first round started to come in. Uh, everyone's trying to get oriented and figuring out where everybody's at and where the incoming fire fire is, but after that, people started to return fire. Uh, we, everybody uh, fell in line, their training kicked in, we established a base of fire and started to maneuver our elements toward the uh, compound to take the compound from the enemy fighters and secure the objective. Right. Um, were you, were I you, do sub- remember, go ahead, sorry. I do remember um, it was a really cold morning, yeah. it was really crisp. And the air was totally, you know, calm and still. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of adrenaline pumping. I'm sure everybody was pretty excited. But uh, but we were, we, I really felt like this was the first time we were really getting to do our duty and, you know, do the job I had trained for for years at that point. Raj, Raj. I remember, um, I remember when we got in there, and by the time I was with the support by fire, and so I moved forward and was the last one in, and you had already started tearing down uh, the objective and pulling stuff out. Were you surprised by the amount of weaponry they had in that building? Oh, I was. I was very surprised um, when we initially moved up to the to the build. There was a, a, a couple, a few buildings surrounded by kind of a walled compound, and um, we had been taking fire from that area. We had suppressed those buildings and moved up the first uh, the first team. Sergeant Vito's team, if I recall correctly, had yeah. come up and uh, established a foothold in the compound, taken the initial doorways and objectives, and my team was the team that pushed through and, uh, you know, went and secured the area that turned out to be the living quarters for the uh, Al-Qaeda fighters that had, had holed up in that building. Um, yeah, I was very surprised. There was a, a large amount of weaponry explosives, ammunition, food, supplies, medical gear, uh, hand grenades, dynamite, plastic explosives. I mean, they were uh, they were definitely the bad guys. They were ready for war. Yeah, yeah. In the preceding interview with uh, Lieutenant Dan, um, or Lieutenant D- Dave, I keep calling Lieutenant Dan like Forrest Gump, um, uh, Daniel was the one that found my bag, which was from Beaverton, Oregon, and he's the one that found it, and then I humped it out along with my satellite radio, which turned out to be the best intel we got, correct? My radio was worth the hump that I did it, but um, I, I that was my point that I was really blown away because you only could get that from Beaverton, Oregon. So one of these chucks that you know we took over their houses, and it could have been the guys that got capped on the ridgeline, um, actually had been in Oregon, and that just really surprised me. You know, it took me back. Oh, oh, yeah. No, I was very surprised by the amount of Western, you know, mm-hmm. there was Western, there was American money. There were modern American night vision goggles present at the compound. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was sophisticated equipment. They had radios. They were uh, more prepared than I had anticipated. Yeah. They certainly had a lot of equipment. Now, um, since you searched it, in my memory, and I don't know if I'm right or not, so this is a question I had written down for you, um... There was California license plates, wasn't there? Or Washington? It was like a West Coast license plate. I remember find that it was found on the objective, these IDs from America. Is that true? 
Yeah, that is correct. We found some um, some student IDs from uh, some kind of uh, university, and we found uh, like several license plates from different states. Yeah, there was Qurans, there was English, like uh, books, you know, like how to learn English, you know, English and Arabic translation books. There was um, passports. There was just tons of stuff. Obviously, we had to be pretty brief there because we left the objective pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah, we did. But I I definitely plod through that stuff, and to be honest with you, I got some of it hanging on my wall here. Good uh, for you. You got to send me a picture, dude. Send me a picture. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta, I, go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, I did I did grab a couple of uh, momentum, a little momentos out of that uh, first Taliban compound that I held on to. There was a uh, a lot of equipment and a lot of Taliban stuff there, uh, you know, propaganda-type items. Yeah. Um, and, I, and one of the things I, I definitely remember was when we in the, uh, the structures that were the, you know, the sleeping quarters, that they had a teapot that was boiling over when we went in still. Yep. I remember so, the, the lamb, too, wasn't it? There was um carcass sitting there that they had been cutting off lamb. Was, is that true? Was my memory serving? Yeah, right? no, that's correct. There was, yeah, yeah. yeah there was a, there was fresh uh, carcass out that was being butchered. There was uh, hot food on the stove. There was half-eaten breakfast scattered. There was uh, untied boots and weapons left scattered on the floor. We clearly jumped these guys at breakfast, and they weren't ready yeah. for us. Well, in the previous interview, we went through the movement to Betty, and then you know the the tactical mistake of pulling down to low ground and going to LZ-15. Um, from your perspective as a team leader, even you caught that, and were you surprised that they pulled us off the high ground to have to go back and regain, regain the high ground? Yeah, uh, I, I do remember that during the, the course of the operation, there seemed to be some confusion. They definitely had us pick up and move back and forth. It seemed like to the same spots, you know, kind of over and again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you that my memory is clouded by how much ammunition and weapons I was carrying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was concentrating most of the time on putting one foot in front of the other and not getting shot. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Uh, it's true. It was, it was very arduous, you know. And when uh, Lieutenant Dave and I were discussing this on the podcast. Um, we remember that we were, we were dragging skid coes and things I had forgotten about. I mean, we really, at that elevation, even though we say we tailored the load, we really didn't. Yeah, we, our loads were really heavy. The oxygen was really thin, and we were climbing. I mean, we were literally climbing up mountains that I couldn't imagine. I, I distinctly remember climbing with my rucksack on and my rifle hanging around my neck going up the mountain thinking, I am so happy they PT'd the hell out of us <laughs> all these years. Yeah. I, now I know why they made us get up and run at 5 o'clock every morning. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, ooh, it's it, was, it was definitely a physically tough, tough mission. Yeah, yeah. I had been in, um, I think it was 15 and a half years, and I never thought I'd fight in the mountains, and I thought I was in decent shape. I mean, granted, I was getting older, and I wasn't as good a shape as I used to be. But I, that was a suck fest. I, I do remember a suck fest. That was that you, you just every step was a hard breathe. But um, moving to day two, um, at grabbing excerpts because you know this is something that's not in the book. Not a good day to die. It's not really covered in depth in the the documentary that 
um, I'll send you Daniel because you're in it. So I'll send you the the um, video so you can see it. But um, the day two where we were getting the the crap mortared out of us, what what are memories you have of it? Because it was interesting talking to the Lieutenant Dave. He had a different recollection than what I had of when one landed right next to us. Um, so I'd be interested to hear what you remember of that day. Oh, I remember that um, we had uh, come. We had been higher up in the mountains. Well, well, let me rewind a little bit because I, I actually think uh, so. At the beginning of the day, before the the, the mortar attack happened, we had mm-hmm. kind of pulled down into a little saddle. Yeah, yeah. and. I'm not sure what we were doing. I think the company might have been regrouping or getting ready to do we were, something. Yeah, we were linking up with the other platoons, but then we went to ground because Thompson uh, had a cold injury. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. what it was. So, so we were conducting a link up there, and then in the morning, um, I was sent with my fire team up to the top. We were kind of in a spot at the bottom of a mountain. And in the morning, my fire team got sent up to the top of the mountain to set up an LPOP. Mm-hmm. And so um, we hiked way up there onto the top of this little ridge, myself and, and two other soldiers. And I remember the sun was coming up, and it was starting to warm up, and we had brought a couple of MREs with us up there. And we had just sat down and had kind of found a little spot by some rocks to nestle in. And all of a sudden, a big explosion uh, uh uh, mortar round exploded about two or three hundred meters away from us and kind of out behind us. And we, we, I was kind of shocked. I, I looked over, I saw it explode, and we all kind of looked at each other. And then uh, another mortar round, maybe, you know, we kind of got, we started to get on the radio and call it what had happened, and another mortar round then landed on the other side of us. Yeah. And so it suddenly dawned on me, well, hey, that's, this is a bad situation. I'm on top of this, this ridge here, and around water around has landed on either side of us. I think we've been spotted. Yeah. So yeah. I ran down into the saddle. At that point, everybody was starting to, you know, scramble around and realize that there was some fire coming in. And uh, I remember just sitting there like sitting ducks on the ridge as they just hurled mortar rounds at us one after another, and we tried to call in airstrikes to hit their mortars. But uh, it seemed like that went on for a long time in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was actually um, six hours. That was a six-hour day that, you know, we weren't getting mortared the whole time, but there were times it just kept coming, and they eventually, you know, eventually they got whacked through uh, – airstrikes and mortars from as it's shown in the book and of course because sergeant uh harry squad was over there with alpha company carrying off Beaudry, and um they were helping and he had helped to just fire and they finally killed him on the ridge line but we i remember us staying a long time afterwards until we finally we waited till dusk to consolidate as a company on top of that mountain which was known as lz 15 and as my memory serves we went into a company perimeter at that time yeah, that sounds that sounds about yeah. right. Uh, the one memory that I that I have from the mortar attack that's, that's kind of funny is I remember when I was a kid reading books about uh, World War II, and I remember reading in those books about how the soldiers would try to use their boots to scratch themselves a little hole and stack the rocks up around their head and try to like dig themselves into the ground under fire. 
Yeah. And I remember being a child and reading that and thinking, that is ridiculous. Those guys should just man it up, not be trying to dig into the ground. <laughs> and I, I distinctly remember laying on the ground and trying to dig a hole with the heels of my boots and trying to stack rocks up around where my head was and thinking, well, this is what it's like. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah, I'm with you. Even in, you know, even after that, when we went back to the battle position um, on day three, I remember when we moved into the battle position, we set up, and you know, we were def- we were being tactical, but we hadn't really done that. But when you came back day three, I remember even I and the CP in the center of the perimeter, you know, I stacked rocks. I made like a little ranger grave out of rocks just to have something. To hunker down because those motors mortars made me think uh, I need to be small and behind something. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. they really changed my perspective yeah. on warfare. From then on, I I was always thinking, you know, where's a place I can get down? Where's a place Bingo. I can get low? Because we had mortar rounds landing all around us, and you know, the trick is if you can stay low enough and you know keep down enough, you have a good chance of surviving. But it's a uh, Anyone that's been under a, a consistent, you know, mortar attack knows it's got to be one of the most terrifying things to go through. You can hear those mortar rounds mm-hmm. coming down, and it's not a fun, fun yeah, sound. It's not cool at all. Um, so after after the mission, and, and we go back to um, Bagram, and then we head back down to Kandahar, uh, we eventually end up out in Oregon E. And do you have any... Uh, and for the listeners, you know, we were guarding an SF base that's not no longer there anymore, so we can say these things. Um, do you have any memories from Oregon E that were good for you? Yeah, I definitely remember um, we were sent out to a, a remoter part of Afghanistan to guard a, a small uh, fire base that the special operations were using to, you know, facilitate missions with the local militia in the area. And... Um, I remember being being sent out there, and I, that was really one of the highlights of my tour. Um, I actually remember having a great time out there. Uh, things were pretty relaxed. We got to go out with the SS guys on missions and go to town and really get it get a feel for the land and the area, uh, for the culture. We got to eat a lot of the food with the locals, and it was kind of like a different taste of the war. It went from being you know involved in a really complex military operations like. Anaconda, where you have all types of conventional units, you know, and going to Oregon was almost like going out to the Wild West and being yeah. involved in the special operations side of it, which was really cool. Yeah, that's um, my favorite memories are from there, too, because I went out with the SF guys, too, when it was just me and them, and uh, got to ride the ATVs and crap like that, and I remember... Maybe I should have gone SF. You know, maybe I should have gone SF because they definitely, you know, it seemed cool. And I, I know it's it's got its more harrowing dangers than I, I know because they do some serious, you know, secret squirrel stuff with a lot, you know, they have a lot of support, but they're smaller in numbers. Um, but it, it definitely was a different world. And um, I, I did, did you ever get the crud? I remember getting the crud out there in Oregon E. Um, I tell people all the time, I got really, really sick. Did you ever get that little virus that was going around? You know, I was actually one of the few people, I think there might have been only a couple people that didn't get sick. Yeah. And I managed to, to stay healthy the whole time I was there. I don't know how I did it, but, uh, but yeah. yeah, no, I do remember everybody getting terribly sick, probably from the food and from, yeah. you know, all kinds of uh, unsanitary living conditions. Yeah, I, I burned in 
finally they the SF medic grabbed me, took me back because I was on the you know I had the night shift, and uh, so I'd run the talk at night, and they gave me three IV bags and I still didn't pee. That's how dehydrated I ended up getting because I just remember sitting on those um, fifty-five gallon drum toilets we had, uh, staring at the beautiful landscape and just having diarrhea that just wouldn't stop. I don't know what it was, but I, I had never been that sick. But I refused to take the Cipro just because, you know, anthrax was such a fear back there. And even though we were inoculated for it, you know, I, if you take it, it doesn't work the next time you really need it, right? So I was, like, being really weird about it that I don't want to take that because what if I get anthrax? But um, so anything else you want to talk about with the whole – the whole deployment or are there any other memories you want to bring up? I mean, I know Lieutenant Reese has a memory that he wanted to give you some grief on. So why don't we hear your side of it since he talked about it, uh, to me offline. <laughs> sure. Sure. I'll touch. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things too, I want to touch on real quick is that one of the things that I think was really unique about our experience in Afghanistan that really stands out. And probably a lot of people don't, don't really understand is we arrived there before any infrastructure, was was present whatsoever we really lived on the edge our sanitary conditions were you know really touch and go obviously you you touched on having to you know burn our own uh feces uh, waste (laughs) material and you know but it wasn't just that we didn't have clean clothes we didn't have clean socks we didn't have clean underwear if your clothes got a hole in them you just had to live with it you tried to clean yourself as best you could, but we didn't have, you know, water to shave in or anything. So it's not surprising people got sick. You can see how over the course of history, diseases really impacts armies, because even with all of our modern technology, we were barely, you know, barely existing as people. We were really living in the dirt every single day, Yeah, living a a tough life, you know? Yeah, we were. I mean, I... Um, I, I've I've enlightened. Uh, I think on the previous podcast I talked about it, but you know we didn't get hot chow for like I want to say it was three months, and it was tea rats. But I mean, it wasn't frequent. You, you were eating bag nasty every day. Oh yeah, no, it was it was MREs uh, or you know whatever local food you could buy or scavenge up, and if you ate that, you took you know the extreme risk of getting yourself really sick. And a lot of guys were concerned, and I was too. To this day, I suspect that they poisoned a lot of the food that, that people ate. Yeah, um, I bet a lot they of people did. People got so sick. I yeah. think there's a, especially you know, uh, a later on looking back at it, it would have been so easy for those people to put rat poison or bug spray, you know, whatever mm-hmm. uh, in the food they gave us. I think we were probably playing fast and loose, eating, yeah, eating as much local food as we did. Well. Um, Fat, I, I'm fat as hell now because I'm, you know, retired, but I, I still tear up some non. Uh, there's a place in Nashville that has a, uh, it's in, at the farmer's market, and they have a uh, Middle Eastern grocery store right there. And somebody makes Afghan non, uh, and they sell it, and we'll go buy it every once in a while because my wife likes it. But I got to admit, I, I was the same way. I was worried about eating it, but... I love me some naan. I just love that stuff. I don't oh, know why. yeah. Uh, the, the, their fresh naan was definitely to yeah. die for. Yeah, I remember the garbage well, bag the naan. Things, oh, yeah. yeah. One of the things that, uh, at uh, Orgoon was, uh, that was really cool was that we were in a really remote area, and, there, you know, there wasn't a lot of adult supervision. Uh, no, no, uh, no offense. Uh, yeah, 
listen, I, I let you guys go. I did. I did as a platoon sergeant. That was my job. No. But it was a good time just to relax. No, it was a good time. So one of the things we got to do that was really one of the highlights of, of my experience was I was really into into shooting guns and, you know, machine guns and all the different types of weapons we used as infantrymen. And there at, uh, at Orgoon, we could basically just drive you know, out behind the fire base a few hundred meters, grab whatever weapons we wanted to, and we had a, a unlimited supply of ammunition. Nobody raised an eyebrow back then. Yeah. And we would just shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot until we basically couldn't shoot anymore. And uh, I had brought my M4 carbine back there, and um, we had talked to the SF guys and told them we were going to go shooting. And they said, take, hey, take as much ammunition as you guys want to. So me and a few buddies, we popped into the ammo supply point and grabbed probably three or 4,000 rounds of ammo, several cases, and just uh, went up on the hill, you know, back behind the base and just started loading magazines and just shooting until we were completely bored. And I must have shot probably better than 1,500 rounds through my rifle in one sitting. Oh, wow. And, um... <laughs> and eventually, toward the end, it, it started to malfunction. And uh, I brought the rifle back into the base and, you know, stripped it down and trying to, to get it to work again. But I had uh, messed up the headspace on the bolt by just, you know, shooting it to death, basically. It was an old rifle anyways. And so, uh, you know, that's pretty irresponsible for an infantryman to destroy his own weapon. So I had to trade weapons with the lieutenant. <laughs> and here I am, a uh, a corporal having to come uh, heart in hand to my lieutenant, telling him that I have managed to destroy my rifle, having a good time out behind the base. Can I borrow his? <laughs> so, uh, that is a true story. So I had to uh, I had to give my broken rifle to the lieutenant because obviously his job doesn't require him as a as a, a rifle team leader I have to have a functioning rifle yeah you so. do yeah you do yeah he had to eat eat some humble pie that's for sure yeah he said he said and this was offline but he said and then i cleaned it and it worked again so give him hell so that's why we brought it up on the podcast because he had to uh yeah. clean your weapon <laughs> yeah no uh to show what a what a sin that is as an infantryman i'm still getting razzed about it 15 years later so uh so take care of your rifle i guess that lessens uh yes, <laughs> yes. well once again, it was a pleasure having you on our show. It's a total honor, and it was an honor to serve with you. Uh, you were one of the uh, best team leaders I ever served with, and definitely your knowledge of weapons and the enemy came in very handy over there. And uh, our this little podcast with only 100 listeners is humbled by you showing up. So thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show. Well, uh, I appreciate it, Sergeant. I, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I was a pleasure serving with you, and uh, I just I, I have really fond memories of our of our time together and the the service we did for our country. And I'm I'm very proud of it, and it's just wonderful talking. Great. Thanks again.
I then want to play some good comedy stuff. So I know this is, you know, one of those kind of put together podcasts. I didn't really want to do a long thing from it. Uh, because let's be honest, it's, it's Veterans Day. It's just another day. And in the scheme of things, it just doesn't seem like it's that important to most of the country. Here is um, from Matt in Oregon, uh, Tom McDonald, No Lives Matter, uh, a voting wrong turn me white one, which is just fucking hilarious, and a TikTok satire of tossing Trump votes. I got that from Jenny in Colorado. The first two were from Matt in Oregon, so enjoy. Hip-hop diet is full of guys who cannot even rap Media dividing us by colors, white or black If you believe in Jesus, these days Christians get attacked If you don't hate police, then everybody thinks you're whack And everything's so connected Black Lives Matter got so aggressive White folks who agree can't support the message Both sides go to war because they don't respect it Our social climate from the global tension Turned to total violence and a whole depression We could unify and then I'll go against them But we let them divide us with votes and elections The music we bump all about shooting guns and doing drugs hey, The things that we want are promoted subliminally through the songs Like, you need a fast car You need designer clothes You need a rap star To tell you to start popping pills, hit the blunt And go live at the club to your bro It's all controlled by the elites Put fake news all over our screens Convincing the right to go fight with the left And distract from the fact it's each other we need uh, Divided by race and religion Segregated into teams uh, You're a white supremacist If you're not, I guess you Antifa Screaming from the rooftops, beat down better Turn us on each other now, no lives matter If we do what the news wants, blood don't splatter Turn us on each other till no lives matter Freedom's dead if you have an opinion, take it back People hate the president, if you don't, then you trash Indoctrinate the nation using news and mainstream rap The government abuses us, it's all part of the plan And it's so confusing, Black Lives Matter is a valuable movement But all lives matter ain't racist or stupid It's non-black humans who don't feel included All colors fall under laws to govern the whole country And we all suffer, we're all broke and nobody recovers Until we accept that we're all brothers Hey, the music we make, all about big booties and getting paid Hey, whoa we watch the news and it fills up our brains with violence and riots and race Like this is a race war You need to hate more Get what you came for You need some songs about Xanax and violence so you can escape more What a vicious cycle we can't break away from They control the culture, they control the paper They're indoctrinating a whole generation Till the patriots start to hate the nation The music we love make us dumb and addicted The news that we watch is brainwashing the children The virus is riots and racist conditions Ain't problems, they're symptoms of life in the system Screaming from the rooftops, beat down better Turn us on each other now, no lives matter If we do what the news wants, blood don't splatter Turn us on each other till no lives matter The music will make you dumb, the media makes you hate And they control them both, there ain't no escape they put the world in a state of chaos Economy crashing and massive layoffs Black against white or it's left versus right Divide and conquer and control is to pay all Screaming from the rooftops Beat down better Turn us on each other now No lives matter If we do what the news wants Blood don't splatter Turn us on each other till no lives matter Mm. 
My name is Will, and not voting for Biden turned me white. Oh, yo, what's up, my fellow business associate? This was me before the election. Every celebrity, every politician, even my own family warned me that if I was black, I'd vote Biden. But I didn't listen. And then November 3rd, I woke up like this. I'm looking at Kim Kardashian right now. It does nothing for me. I'm a black man trapped in a white man's body. I'm a male Rachel Dolezal. I'm a male Dolezal. Finger on the trigger. Two shots on a pinger. Tinger, ginger. Maybe, I don't know, shoot a ginger, maybe? People seem to love when you identify as all sorts of things, but now that I'm an actual black man trapped in the body of this dweeb, no one wants to acknowledge it. I used to be like you. <laughs> I tried to get a haircut today at my favorite barber shop. He told me he doesn't cut lettuce. I don't know, maybe I'll do like a Sean King beard and hairline or something. Honestly, I don't know. Now when I holler at girls in the street, instead of thinking I'm a cool guy, they think I'm a freaking homeless person. Yeah, what's up, girl? How you doing? Okay, sorry. I'm getting cussed out by white girls now. I can kiss jean suits goodbye. When I put them on now, I look like a friggin' hick. It's a Canadian tuxedo. I'm glad someone's happy. I talked to 50 Cent, Little Pump, Thomas Sowell. They're all starting to turn. Kanye got off the Trump train just in time. It always works out for Kanye, doesn't it? The other day I watched Tyler Perry and didn't laugh once. Adam Sandler, on the other hand, I now love. Yesterday I did sensitivity training at work and the girl tried to make me admit that I'm racist towards black people. Bitch, I am black! Sorry, I know I came call girls bitches anymore without social repercussions. Try telling people you like Dragon Ball Z as a grown white man. Maybe I'll be like an environment guy now or something, I don't fucking know. Chelsea called me to remind me that I'm black. But this is how you remind- I'm freaking singing Nickelback now! I look like a fucking douchebag. Hang ten, dude, that's me, that's me now! That's my fucking life! I was looking forward to aging into an old black man, you know? Big belt buckle, unreasonably fancy suits for normal life. Some dude just gave me an atheism pamphlet. Yesterday I drank out of a red cup and I had the urge to flip it. I'm trying to look on the bright side. I mean, I didn't really have that big of a dick for a black guy, so that's a positive. Uh, I got a cab a little easier, I guess that's something. Not helping! Celebrities are always right, take it from me. Stay blue and stay black. I'm not even gonna try doing stand-up comedy. It would be this, in a stool. I work at the boat bailouts, which means we get your votes and we separate them. So, if some of these votes happen to say, like this one, Donald J. Dumb Trump, that one just gonna make it towards the mayor. As some of you guys know, I work... Some funny stuff, so thank you for contributing to the show. I now want to cover something pretty serious, and this is kind of my op-ed for military service. Uh, this is a soundbite that is viral. Um, everybody's seen it. And as we're talking about um, healing and unity, this is happening all over the country. Those are beat people beating the President of the United States in effigy out in the street. And why I have problems with that, I, I would have problems with that if it was Obama. I have problems with that, period. We're in a point in our country where it appears one side is allowed to do whatever they want. And how does that tie into the military? Well, for 20 years, I couldn't have a political opinion. I worked for whoever was the president. 
I'm talking the Clinton years, all sorts of idiosyncrasies of him having sexual relationships with subordinates and military people getting carved out, losing their careers. And on top of it, it just seems a total lack of disrespect for one side of the political equation while the other side does whatever they want. And it really sticks with me because when things happen and military people go out and demonstrate their right to free speech, we then start hearing stories about how vets all have PTSD and are considered terrorists as they were under Obama, Clinton. And it's a huge effect on the military because, A, vets, once they leave service, have every right to demonstrate their freedom of speech. And we earned that right with sacrifices that the left doesn't even respect. I mean, I have this article I'm going to read, and I'm not going to read the task and purpose because they're super liberals, but every election, this affects the military like you wouldn't believe. And so... Military Calm, Army Times, everybody. And a Biden administration changes for the military could start day one. The withdrawal of U.S. troops from Germany, the military transgender ban, the diversion of military construction funds to build a wall, all those controversial policies and others could be history on day one. As soon as he's sworn in, Biden would have the authority with the stroke of a pen to reverse a string of controversial military and national security policies put in place by Trump. The AP and major news outlet projected Biden the winner Saturday, blah, blah, blah. Various advocacy groups are already lining up to hold Biden to his campaign promises. In a statement Saturday, the Modern Military Association of America's nonprofit gay mafia said Biden was expected to reverse the transgender ban. Thankfully, Biden pledged to quickly reverse it. Trump's surprisingly decision to July to remove nearly 12,000 U.S. troops from Germany, shifting some eastward and sending others home, could also be reversed. An early indicator on how far the new president will go in abandoning Trump's America First policy be whether Biden will move to reverse Trump's decision to withdraw troops in Germany, Christopher Sablox, and the Atlantic Council. Do so will down payment on ensuring adequate resources are available to deter Russia. To the end of shoring up alliances, Biden could also immediately end the impasse with South Korea over how much Seoul pays to support the presence of 28,000 troops. South Korea currently pays about $900 million and has offered 13% increase, which was rejected by the Trump administration. Biden has also pledged to move quickly to halt construction of the border as a joint convention in August of National Association of Black Journalists and the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. Biden vows to halt construction on the border. By declaring a national emergency on the border, Trump got this money blah, 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 blah. But more importantly, and I think it was covered really well by Tucker last night, it will turn the military into intersectionality. Critical race theory would be all over the place. They've already started in, that's why the Secretary of Defense was fired by Trump. He should have been fired much earlier. He was a super liberal, and he was already starting to creep towards okay, you don't have a name or anything on this, you don't have that, all these liberal policies to intersectionalize the military so that basically the promotion system was like Wellesley. What's more scary as a vet is the simple concept that every time a den comes over and takes over, they destroy the military. They downsize to a level that we're unprepared for the next war, 
And then the Republican gets blamed for that war while they're starting wars. I mean, Obama started all sorts of wars while he was gutting the military. I mean, brigades went away. There were four brigades at Campbell. There's three under-strength brigades now. And it just sets me off. When I watch all this, whether it was for... Nobody burned Obama. Nobody did these things. But every four years, when we go through this, the violence, everything we've watched in our streets, vets just have to stand there. But when they do anything it's front page news now don't forget some soldiers brought trump flags on a visit years ago and they dox those people so you can expect we will not hear about the gutting of officers that won't get in line people that say the wrong things obama but crystal name it he gutted the military leadership because they wouldn't bow to him or had disagreements, or just weren't liberal enough. Every time Trump fired somebody, it was front page news and it was horrible. And it's just a perversion of the truth. So I wanted to cover it. The media is not going to cover this. I'm going to stay on top of it as the Biden regime takes over. And mark my words, boys and girls, the military's fucked from funding to everything. You can't give out free for everybody. You just can't. Without gutting the defense budget. To my final. Listen, my best 20 years as a man were in the military. The memories, the places I got to see. You know, I, I served every part of this country... I was stationed there. I went to Korea taught twice. I went to Alaska. I went to pretty much everywhere in the Middle East. And I went to Germany. I got to see the world. What I learned on all this and why vets are so overlooked in our society is a work ethic and a dedication to whatever the cause is that no other people have. Secondly, I learned America is a huge place. Everywhere you go, People live differently, their beliefs, what they value, their priorities. It's how I became kind of an independent, and I really started rejecting the extremism on the right and the left, the left mostly now, on trying to cookie-cutter people into one opinion, one way of thinking, and that any other opinions was wrong think, because this country isn't that way. We are not the coast. This election, once again, is a vilification, not of Trumpism, but of the middle of the country. Hard-working people, vets, truck drivers, ditch diggers, framers, just normal blue-collared people who wrong think. And as stated on my political podcast, the problem we have is that the left punishes those people, doxes those people, gets them fired, for wrong speak. There will be protests coming up. It won't be people saying. Kill all cops. And as sure as I'm a fat man. They will be saying. What they're doing is wrong. They will be vilified by the media. They will be called terrorists. White supremacists. 
and you'll never hear peaceful protests. Though they won't burn anything, beat or loot, you'll never hear that word. And I learned that in the military. Because the unit structure had black, Latino, poor, rich, educated, uneducated. People from everywhere was in an infantry platoon. We coexisted and realized there wasn't a lot of differences in us. They say that in their unity, but they simultaneously say, obey and do what we say. Believe what we believe. On the world... I learned that most of these people that have spent these last four years saying that America is a cesspool of racism and a horrible place. So much so they would leave the country if their candidates didn't win. It is grounded on the fact that they've never gone anywhere. They don't see how women are really treated overseas. How minorities are really treated overseas. How Islam perverts generations of kids to do horrible things. They try to liken some people in a Trump caravan to ISIS. It's just disgusting. Just disgusting. Because it could be so far from the truth. And every time I learned these things and I came home, I was so happy that a doctor pulled me out of my mother's crotch to be militarily crude in this country. I was thankful because this is the greatest place you can ever live. The statement for four years that Donald Trump is a tyrant, he's a dictator, he's a fascist, yet but for four years, all you read in the press that's on your TV is how horrible Donald Trump is. Because in our country, you can do that. You can say that. Well, till Biden gets in charge and we'll be told to shut the fuck up as we are now. But all these people in the street trying to burn it down, kill the institutions, it's all because they lack, they are the definition of ignorant. They have no knowledge of what the world's like. And I always think we should just scoop them up and dump them in the Middle East. And then when they come back, they'll be like, holy fucking shit, I'm a dumbass. Because they bought into the crowd that hates this country. That is still standing, still free, because of millions of vets that have laid their life down or served, or permanently disabled from service defending this great country. That's why they're there. And that same crowd disparages people who served. We're just a bunch of low-skilled douche nozzles. That's why you won't see a lot of vet stuff on the TV. There won't be talk about vets. It'll be transgender vets or black vets or Latina vets or fucking illegal illegal aliens working for their fucking visa vets. You won't talk about just normal vets who have PTSD, have physical disabilities that are fucked up. As arrogant as it sounds, You wouldn't be able to burn down cities if vets didn't secure you that right. And as fascism starts to dwindle over to the left now, and maybe people start looking at what's going on, and as they start to enforce 1984 Orwellian 
speech laws and social media continue to suppress the views of 72 million Americans almost, as a vet, I'll stare at it and go, that's not what I fought for. And it's why I covered the fraud one last time. We have fought, been injured, and died so other countries can vote. Yet, if you really want to do a study on voter disenfranchisement, go see how many states really counted the overseas absentee ballots of vets or vets in the United States stationed somewhere else who voted. I will with 100% certainty state, in the state of Oregon, my vote was never counted. And as we've seen with many of these swing states, a lot of these vet votes end up in dumpsters. Because invariably, they are conservative. And we've talked at nauseum on the show. It's not because they're a bunch of white supremacist Nazis. It's because under GOP, they make more money, they get better budgets, and the military usually increases. Which for a guy that works in the military, that means I have more opportunity to get promoted. And to be 100% honest, under Democrats, we were more worried about going to a sawed-off Wag the dog conflict with less supplies, less personnel, so they could check a block that they're a tough guy. I wasn't worried when I was with a conservative. It's supposed to be the opposite. But if we did go to the shit under conservative, we were ready. You can't say that with a Democrat. Because I may sound crazy, but I will tell you right now. You watch. Within the next two years, Biden's going to strike some shit somewhere. It's going to happen. And we'll be downsizing. It'll, it'll just happen. It happens with every Democratic administration. So, to end on a more positive note, anybody who's listening out there I ever served with, God bless you. I hope your life's great. I hope you're enjoying the fruits of your labor I have so many great memories, so many happy things that just come on a cold day or a hot day or I smell dust. I mean, fuck, there's a million memories that come back to me of my service. I want to close on the National Training Center and thank everybody on the 1-1 team. My God, what a way to close my service. Yeah, I'd rather been at the war. I'd rather been with my platoon. But those two years in the sandbox, barbecuing in a wadi, playing 80s, name that tune with my serious record or my serious radio, and just enjoying the company of some great patriots. Well, I, I, I couldn't ask for a better send-off. I got to leave it all on the field and help all these units that were going, mostly National Guards, to the shit. And for years, I got emails back on the thanks for this or that or the whatever. It was very rewarding. But to Cass, 
Turner, 1-1, Alpha, all you guys. What a great time, and I thank you. To my Roxxon brothers, I don't keep up with most of you anymore because I don't have Facebook, but it was an honor and privilege to be able to fly into that shitty-ass fucking valley for 13 days and put boot to ass right after 9-11. It was great. As silly as it sounds, I felt like we're the Doolittle Raiders. At least we got to do something after watching a heinous attack. And I was really honored that I got to do it. And to the rest of the people I served with for 20 great years, God bless you all. Today, if you can, thank a vet. You'll see them. They'll have a hat on. Thank our Vietnam brothers who got treated like shit. The Korean guys who are starting to phase out. Any World War II dude you meet, thank him very much. Buy him a cup of coffee. They are the true elitist in this country, me excluded. They are the reason we have this country. And this country does very little to thank them. So you be the bond and thank them for everything they've done. Because most of you will never know the sacrifices they've done. So, I wanted to end on something funny. I'm going to pull out. So, I'm going to play an excerpt from an NTC video we did. It was a little spoof. And I'm going to close on a family talk of interview with uh, Dana. I can't remember her name on Channel 5 after Anaconda. And we will then just close this out. Tune in once again for Sunday's show. I thank you all for listening. And once again, thank a vet. Thank him. Take care. The Marcone Witch. There was a helicopter. It was coming in. Hundreds of Fort Campbell soldiers are home, settling back into their family life. Tonight, News Channel 5's Dana Kay talks to one of the soldiers she traveled to Afghanistan with in January. In a surprisingly candid interview, he talks about fighting in Operation Anaconda and what it's like to come face-to-face with the al-Qaeda terrorist. Charlie Company, 2nd 187 in Kandahar, Afghanistan. Sergeant Anthony Koch always wanted to be a soldier. The terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center made him fighting mad. Now to see it kind of reaffirms that initial anger. And Operation Anaconda made him a war veteran. Sergeant Koch was on the first Chinook helicopter into the Shaikot Mountains to meet the enemy. Rota wash was real cold, and we didn't really know. You saw stuff kicking up, but you didn't think it was, we are getting shot at because you couldn't hear it. Then the helicopter lifted off, and then, of course, it was fire. His platoon shot it out with al-Qaeda terrorists. And they didn't run. They stayed there and fought. It surprised me, I guess, their intellect that they would actually be that serious about their cause. 
But Sergeant Koch and his soldiers won the battle. We had guys in close that we had to shoot. Um, and then we had to call in Apaches for other guys. And they shot RPGs and weapons and everything at us. Uh, and they missed. This is a picture of his platoon after they took over the enemy compound. And we all moved in the compound, and that's when we found all the stuff, all the weaponry, a lot of AK-47s and machine guns and mortars and all the rounds that go with it all over the place. On their third day in the mountains, his platoon came under heavy mortar fire. It was probably the only time I felt fear out there was that moment because it was very close. And the group of us had gone down like the drill. We're flat on the ground, and that's basically why we didn't take any casualties, because it only landed about 10 feet away from us, but all the explosion went over us. Sergeant Koch keeps a reminder from that day in his pocket. This is part of the uh, shrapnel from the morning round that landed about 10 feet from myself and lieutenant and uh, some of our soldiers. And I just picked it up for kind of a good luck charm. He'll add it to the pouch of good luck charms he carried with him in Afghanistan. Four-leaf clover from 1990. A picture frame for my son, Green Bay Packer helmet. My daughter gave me this, and she says, whenever you're away, you can always point it home. The Camp Kandahar Fort Campbell soldiers found when they arrived in Afghanistan six months ago isn't the same. The junkyard from war's past has been cleared away. Even the faces have changed. And the young soldiers who had never even seen combat now know what it's like to kill. I think my whole life I've had a struggle with that, being a religiously raised person. Um, that shall not kill, always hit me in the head. And even though I've been a soldier, um, the internal thing was always kind of like, well, if I have to do that, that's wrong. Over there, I realized that it's not that. The hard, cold facts, it's them or you. So I don't have any haunting. Uh, saw it. It's just the way things work out. Um, my job was to get my soldiers home to uh, accomplish a mission that was assigned and to come back and see the wife and kids. If that took doing what I had to do, then that's what it took. I don't care. Uh -oh. Macaroni and cheese looks good. Wish we had some. There's another pack in there. Why you make me some? Now that he's home, things are finally getting back to what's normal for the Coke household. Oh, my wife's nice. Son Zach, daughter Brittany, and wife Gigi. Yes, it's great to be home. Sergeant Coke and his soldiers all made it home more thankful than ever to be an American. I think the look at life is a different curve. I mean, you figure you put six months in Afghanistan, the rest of your life's a little bit better. You know, you can appreciate things a little bit more. Sergeant Koch says when he retires from the Army in three or four years, he hopes to become a teacher and spend a lot more time with his family. Tomorrow night, we'll talk to an Army